This week, what puts the brakes on the growth of galaxies? It was uh, essentially a very big uh, question mark how the black hole, which is powerful, is extremely powerful, but so tiny and compact, can affect the whole galaxy. And the scientists whose business ideas are getting a grilling. Really, I have to admit at this point, I don't know what you do, and I, and I don't know why it's important. Plus the ice that could be in all of our cells. This is The Nature Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your galaxy grow? Not as much as we would expect, it seems. In simulations, galaxies form many more stars than we see in the real universe. Something must be stopping stars from developing. The culprits might be supermassive black holes. They lurk at the centre of every galaxy, and when they're active, they produce crazy powerful winds that could blow star-forming gas clean out of the galaxy. But seeing the process in action is difficult. Black holes are powerful all right, but they're tiny compared to their galaxy, and the winds obscure the black hole. Physicists have seen either the black hole or a sea of gas exiting the galaxy, but not the two together. Now a group of astrophysicists have caught a black hole red-handed. Francesco Tombesi, an astrophysicist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Centre, explained their findings to reporter Lizzie Gibney. Francesco started by describing the environment in the galaxy's turbulent core. Yeah, so the environment around the black hole is really, really extreme. The black hole that we are talking about, they have masses of the order of one million up to a billion times the sun. What happens when the material is sucked into the black hole, so before falling inside the black hole to be lost into oblivion, this material forms a sort of vortex that we astronomers call accretion disk. Do we think then that this disk has is playing some kind of role in, in suppressing so many uh, stars from forming or the galaxy from growing? Yeah, so the material in this disk becomes so hot and produces through friction a huge amount of radiation, so luminosity. And in particular, many of these uh, black holes that are accreting material then are called uh, quasars. So they, they have a huge amount of luminosity of the order of a trillion times the luminosity of the sun. This luminosity can have effects on the environment in the galaxy, but in particular it can also push away the material which is falling into the black hole. And so you've tried to see if this process is actually happening. You, uh, you studied a galaxy that, um, that has a very, very catchy name, it's mostly formed of numbers. Um, what kind of galaxy is that? The name is IRAS F11119 plus 3257, looks like a phone number. This is a, a galaxy which is a, of a particular type, an ultra-luminous infrared galaxy. It means that it is extremely luminous in the infrared, as uh, the name says. And this galaxy is actually the remnant of a collision, of a, a merging between two previous galaxies. And what were you able to see then? How did you look at this galaxy? So we looked at this galaxy in two ways. One was uh, in the X-rays, so we used the data uh, collected through a satellite called Suzaku. This is a Japanese and American satellite. And also in the infrared, using another satellite of uh, the European Space Agency, which is called uh, Herschel. So essentially, for the first time, we see two types of winds or outflows or ejection of gas in these two different wavebands. 
we saw this material being pushed out in the X-rays very close to the, to the quasar, and then material, colder material in molecules much farther out. That seems quite amazing that this relatively tiny black hole is effectively bullying this whole galaxy. Yeah, definitely. It was uh, essentially a very big uh, question mark how the black hole, which is powerful, is extremely powerful, but so tiny and compact, can affect the whole galaxy, which is millions of times larger. And we found that uh, the black hole can influence the galaxy through uh, this uh, ejection of these uh, winds. Why is it then that that stops so many stars from forming or the galaxies from growing? What's the relationship between that gas and the stars? So essentially the gas that we observed in infrared, this is a very cold gas, it's molecular gas. This cold gas will collapse through its own gravity and eventually would form stars. However, in this case, the black hole is ejecting the gas which would eventually form stars at a very large rate. For instance, this gas is, corresponds to about 800 suns a year that are ejected and are not formed. So it sounds like black holes play an incredibly important role then in, in how galaxies form across the universe. Yes, definitely. And especially uh, for very massive galaxies in which the black hole is very, very big, so it's much more powerful, the effect can be dominant. In other cases, for instance, in our Milky Way, the effect can be important, but the black hole is not very big, and also the galaxy is not uh, that big, so there are not many stars being formed. So it's probably similar. In some cases, the black hole acts like the director of an orchestra, which is directing the formation of new stars, or it is stopping completely. Do we have a black hole in the middle of our, of our galaxy, the Milky Way? So our black hole is at the very, very centre of our galaxy, and it is at a distance of about 8, uh, what we say, 8 kiloparsecs, so about uh, 15,000 light-years away from us. That's relatively close, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, from an astrom- astronomical <laughs> point of view, that's uh, really around the corner. The mass of this black hole is about 1 million times the Sun. So now we don't see the black hole very active, but we know that uh, there were periods in the past, for instance, several thousand years ago, in which the black hole might have been uh, much more active. Uh, the black hole might have, uh, might have had effects on uh, the stars in our galaxy itself. That was Francesco Tombesi at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Coming up, turning science into business with a biotech boot camp. But first, time for the research highlights and also time to introduce the Nature Podcast's newest team member, Adam Levy. Take it away, Adam. Are there superbugs hiding under your bed? The drug-resistant bacterium, MRSA, isn't limited to hospitals. In fact, it's been lurking in North American homes since the 1990s. New research looked at patients with MRSA and at other members of their household comparing their bug strains. They were really similar, showing that the source of the patient's infection could have been their homes. The results also reveal that the bug can be present in homes for up to eight years before anyone gets sick, and that bedding, clothing and pets could carry it. Research like this may help to control its spread. The article is in mBio. Mudskippers are fish with an unusual habit. They tend to hang out on land. As a result, they've had to develop a novel way of eating their lunch. Usually, fish gulp up their prey by sucking up the water surrounding it. 
but this is no easy task when you're a fish out of water. So mudskippers carry some water around in their mouths, which they use to engulf their food. Video and x-ray imaging reveal that these bizarre fish use the bubble of water to envelop their targets, and then suck it all up. This works a lot like a tongue, which may help us understand how tongues evolved in the first place. More in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. Coming up, I'll be finding out about square ice. But before that, the scientists whose business plans are getting a thorough once over. Science is full of good ideas. And sometimes they're actually worth money. Like if you discovered a new molecule that shrinks tumours or kills pain. But how do you move it from the test bed of the lab to real business? Well, there's a new way being trialled in the US. Welcome to ICOR. Core as in corporation. It's described as... A biotech boot camp. This is Heidi Ledford, one of Nature's reporters, and she's written about ICOR in a feature. It's an intensive course. It's maybe nine weeks long, and it's designed to teach scientists um, who want to be entrepreneurs how to think more like businessmen. It's trying to focus scientists away from their next experiment or publication and force them to think about their customers and their bottom line. And it's not doing any of this gently. Don't do this tomorrow. This was just motherhood and apple pie and a waste of your time and ours. What, what explicitly are you offering? What is it? No, I'm asking you, what is it that you offer? This is entrepreneur Steve Blank, the creator of i and one of several business people in the room listening to the presentations. This particular team was presenting their work on a new painkilling drug but they were being a bit circuitous about it. If you spend the next nine weeks telling us about pain, then you're going to be suffering pain, not us. (laughs) Uh, uh, Anybody else on the teaching team? They weren't the only ones to get dressed down by the dragons. Really, I have to admit at this point, I don't know what you do, and I I don't know why it's important. Don't believe any of your numbers. I mean, you understand that. I mean, your target market is not very big. You know that. Everything is so vague and high level, it's really even hard to know where to grab on. But it's all in aid of better-targeted, more customer-pleasing companies at the end. Here's Heidi Ledford again with more on i Heidi, you went along to some of these presentations, or maybe we should call them grillings, at the National Institutes of Health. Why does science need something like this when scientific products already make it to market? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, certainly it does happen. And, you know, you do get drugs coming through, wonderful drugs and devices coming through the system as it is. Um, But you also have a lot of companies, you know, a lot of scientists, particularly at universities, who are very interested in starting companies. You know, depending on who they're working with when they start the company, they may not have a lot of training in terms of the business side of things. And the government has seen that as well. So the government has um, a series of grants. They're called SBIR grants. I think it's Small Business Innovation Research Grants. And they've been awarding those for years. And what they found is that those those grants aren't always really put to... um, I don't want to say not to good use because they're, they're often being used to fund more research, but not necessarily research that's really targeted for commercializing a product at the end. That the scientists are kind of, they're still doing what they're familiar with doing, which is, you know, investigating things and finding out great scientific discoveries, but, you know, not necessarily pu- pushing a product to get to the market. And what was this experience like for the teams that you saw? It was quite something to watch. I mean, it was very clear that, you know, the, the teams would get up and they would present in the front of the room. And then in the back of the room, there would be this panel of instructors. And, and the person who really sort of created this program, Steve Blank, is an entrepreneur, was sitting in the back there, too. And it was very clear that they were tr- trying very hard to rattle the teams in front of them. And they would they would say things that were vaguely or even really directly insulting, really kind of knock them off their feet a little bit. Um 
so it can be quite harsh at the beginning. Now the teams did tell me, you know, as the as the class went on, that there was more carrot and less stick, you know, and and it was there was less and less of that kind of rough treatment, you know, that they saw in the beginning. But what Blank says is that it's really it's not meant to be just cruel. That it's meant to kind of shock them out of their comfort zone and get them ready to think, you know, maybe I'm not the smartest guy in the room on this particular topic anymore. Maybe I do need to listen to to other people's opinions and change my own ideas and so on. And does this dragon's den kind of approach for science, for in this instance, a lot of these companies are, are trying to develop drugs. I mean, does it work? They have done this before. Now, this is the first. Um, this is the first time that U.S. National Institutes of Health has really tried to use it, and um, and it hasn't been used as much with biomedical companies. So this is this is kind of the new direction that it's pushing into. It has been used a lot, though, for other kinds of companies, and and in particular, the National Science Foundation has been using it. Uh, for some of its grantees for since I think 2011, and they say, you know, they when they survey their the participants in the program that the vast majority of them have decided to change their business strategy in one way or, or another, you know, which I guess may or may not be good, but it is at least informed, uh, and you know, an inf- a better informed decision to change their business strategy. Um, but and they also say that over half of the or about half of the participants go on to start a company. And will you be following up on the progress of some of the teams that went through the round you went to see? Yeah, I think some of them were quite interesting. And a number of them, actually. So the, the program concluded in December. And I did talk to a few, you know, in January and February. Quite a few of them have gone on from there to start really pitching their companies to uh, to investors and venture capitalists and so on. And, uh, yeah, I'm very interested to see, you know, how they do, if they're able to to get more investment and, and also how their business strategies change. I mean, there were a number of them who really dramatically changed what they were trying to do. And I think it'd be very interesting to see, you know, how that pans out. Reporter Heidi Ledford and before her, you heard a melange of Steve Blank and some of the other dragons. Now, as you know, Kerry usually has a go at me for drinking on the job. Usually it's a disciplinary matter. But for this next story, a gin and tonic is totally justified because that comes with ice. And this next story is about that. Ice. It all started as a bit of an accident. Irene Grigorieva from the University of Manchester in the UK was trying to understand how water acts under extremely high pressure when squeezed between two sheets of graphene, squeezed into what they call a nano-channel. To everyone's surprise, the answer was ice. Room temperature ice. Room temperature ice of a completely different molecular structure to normal ice. I need a drink. My name is uh, Irina Grigorieva, and I'm professor of physics at the University of Manchester. The home of graphene. The home of graphene, that's right, yes. Now, I've brought some ice with me into the studio, and I just wonder if you could tell me then, what do we know about the structure of this chilly crystal? What we know about the structure of the normal ice, that at the heart of it is a hexagonal arrangement of water molecules. So the water molecules like to sit in the corners of a regular hexagon. Snowflakes that always look hexagonal, we see the six branches of snowflakes, that comes about because of this underlying hexagonal structure of ice. Another feature is that water molecules like to be arranged with respect to the other water molecules, forming a little pyramid. So these are essential features of normal ice. And this structure remains even under kind of huge pressures? Yes, this structure remains even under huge pressures and the very, very, very huge pressures, it gets distorted. Let's just cut to the chase then. You and your team have created a form of ice with a completely different fundamental structure. Exactly. 
that was really surprising. So we didn't expect to find square ice, but what we found is very nice solid square ice, which is a new phase of ice. What were you interested in about, you know, the interaction of water in this in this setup? At first, we were interested to find out what is the behavior of water in such nanochannels, because we found that there is something strange in terms of water going through them. It's going too fast, and it's going in a way as if it's being sucked in, and you cannot explain that by just imagining a bit of liquid, a very thin layer of liquid. Liquids do not behave in that way. So we tried to answer the question, what does water look like when it is inside such a narrow channel? Why doesn't liquid water behave like that in a nanochannel? Because water experiences very high viscosity, which means that the water molecules, they would stick to the walls of the tube. Intuitively, you would think, yes, so if I make the tube very narrow, it will just not go through at all. But what we found, that it goes very, very fast, much faster than even it does through a huge tube. So there was something completely different going on at the nanoscale. And the way that you tried to kind of emulate these small channels was that you squeezed water very tightly in between a kind of graphene sandwich. Yes, exactly. So we have two layers of graphene, and then we put tiny amount of water on one of them, and then we cover it with the second layer. That's it. So we, we make a sandwich, yes. And graphene, the two layers, the force of attraction between them is very strong. So they squeeze water into as little space as possible because of this very strong adhesion between graphene layers. What is it about being squeezed between these layers of graphene that creates this peculiar structure of ice? Is it just huge pressure or or what's going on? Yes, the pressure is very important and the pressure will exist in any nanochannel. That's just the property of the nanochannel. You know, when uh, atoms or molecules uh, or surfaces, they are close together, they want to collapse. They don't want this space between them. And this creates a quite large, actually, pressure in a graphene channel, but it will be very similar to in, in, in any channel. The pressure we estimated, it is one gigapascal. So gigapascal is 10 to the 9, so it is 10,000 times higher than the atmospheric pressure. The sandwich did it itself. That's the important bit. How did you figure out what molecular structure the ice had in, in this graphene sandwich? Well, we know what graphene looks like, right? So graphene in a microscope, you, you see these little hexagons, that carbon atoms are arranging, etc. But what we saw in this sandwich is much brighter black spots, which formed square lattice. Using other tools, we were able to say for sure, yes, this is oxygen, and yes, this is ice, meaning that it is really a solid a crystal, Room temperature ice doesn't sound very useful for my gin and tonic, but um, I suppose this is more interesting from a fundamental point of view about how water interacts at these nanoscales in in nature. Yes, absolutely. That's where the interest lies. So we cannot separate this ice from the nanochannels. It is only room temperature ice when it is confined in a nanochannel. But an interesting question is, is it just graphene? And the answer is not. So experimentally, what we were able to do is to create this nanochannel from graphene. But we also tried, and we believe we did answer the question, how general this is. Does it also exist in, in, in all, basically, nanochannels? To answer that question, we used computer simulations. And what this computer simulation showed us, that for all substances that at least to some extent repel water, nanochannels made from them, they will have square ice inside. So it's very general.
We all have nano channels, you know, passing water across cell membranes in, in all of our cells. Are you saying that there's room temperature ice forming in all of our cells all of the time? It is very likely, yes. So it will depend probably on the shape of the channel a little bit, but most likely, yes. I mean, I know it's not cold, but all of a sudden, irrationally, I feel very cold. <laughs> It does make you feel strange, I, I agree with that. But the important thing to realize is that it is ice in the sense of crystalline structure. It's not ice in the familiar sense that it's something cold and, and from which you have to protect yourself. News time now and Matt Crenson joins me from over the pond. Hi, Matt. Hi there. OK, so you've got two stories for us today and we start off in Germany where the first pig biobank has recently been constructed. What is this? Well, I don't know that it's the first pig biobank, but it is the first systematic repository of tissue from a large genetically engineered animal, aside from humans. It's a way to get the most uh, benefit out of these very um, expensive animals and also to make sure that, you know, since you're sacrificing an animal, you're using the whole thing and, and getting the most scientific value out of it. Okay. And, and what is the scientific value that people are aiming for? These are models of diabetes. That's correct. They're um, genetically engineered to have a form of diabetes. They need insulin injections throughout their lives. And the researchers are interested in the complications of diabetes in humans. So people who live with diabetes for a long time, they start to develop uh, nerve degeneration in their extremities. They have heart disease and kidney disease. They uh, can go blind. And nobody really understands the process. So this is a way of looking at it in, uh, in another animal and trying to figure out what's going on. And being able to track it over sort of you know, realistic lengths of time. Right. So they raise these pigs for about three and a half years before their uh, necropsied, which is the word when you do an autopsy on an animal. And this process, we, our reporter in Germany actually went and saw it, it done. Um, the animal is brought in, anesthetized, they inject it with an anesthetic uh, that kills it, and then 25 surgeons and technicians swarm all over it, taking samples of all the organs and parts of the animal and picking out particular cells to sample and save in the biobank. The whole thing takes about two hours and 15 minutes, apparently. Wow, so it's all very tightly orchestrated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a you know an emergency me medical procedure, um, only it's done, uh, it's done on a pig. I'm sure that was quite harrowing to watch. Yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> and um, why specifically pigs? Well, pigs are really good. Uh, you know, there are already biobanks for mice, and mice are great models for lots of different human diseases because they're small and they reproduce quickly. But pigs are more like humans. Um, they're larger animals, and their biology is surprisingly similar to human biology. And um, obviously it's very early for this particular facility, but, um, you know, when can we expect some results and how are we going to kind of m measure the value of, of, this, of this pig biobank? That's a little hard to say. Some biobanks haven't been very successful because researchers, um, maybe they haven't publicized that they're available and researchers haven't uh, taken advantage of them too much. Um, but this one seems to be very popular. And Well, it's nice to know that the Nature Podcast is playing its part in spreading the word. If you need diabetes, pig samples, get in touch. <laughs> you can find them in Munich. And they're free, actually. Researchers uh, just have to pay for the postage um, and they, uh, they can get the samples for free. 
And, and just lastly on this topic, will this model stop with diabetes? No, actually, they're already working on a second uh, line of pigs uh, that's engineered to have muscular dystrophy. Okay, uh, so for the second story, we'll we'll stay with modelling, but we'll switch from diabetes modelling to climate modelling. Uh, specifically, there's a, a huge 10-year US-led project to improve global climate simulations. That's right. It's yeah, it's really interesting. So uh, you know, climate simulations are extremely complicated, and they have to incorporate a lot of processes that are only partly understood. And there's a there's a couple of problems that the models have in simulating processes that go on in both the Arctic and in the tropics. Um, so the U.S. Department of Energy has put together a program to do ecological research in these areas and try to figure out a little bit more about these processes so that it can be plugged directly into climate models. In the past, ecologists have gone out and done the research um, in things that they're curious about, and modelers have had to kind of adapt it to their own uses. But these experiments are specifically set up to feed into climate models. And specifically the data that they're, they're seeking out then in the rainforest project, that's related to how the rainforests are going to respond to the increased CO2. That's right. So in the tropics, this is the newer one that they're just starting up. They're going to have sites in Puerto Rico and uh, Brazil and Panama. And the the real question is how are our trees and other plants going to respond to increased carbon dioxide. So as the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere increases, um, plants through photosynthesis take up carbon dioxide and turn it into wood and things like that. Um, so an increase in the atmosphere in carbon dioxide will increase plant growth. And if it's, if it's enough, it could have a pretty substantial uh, negative feedback on warming. Um, and so you, you really want to know how big that effect is and incorporate it into models. And so that's the aspiration for, for this whole program. Why aren't the modelers just sort of modeling the effect of CO2 on the rainforest? Well, you in the past, um, there have been experiments that actually tried to grow plants under enriched carbon dioxide conditions. So that in greenhouses, they would pump up the level of carbon dioxide and try to figure out how the plants responded. But that turned out to be a little too complicated, and the results were uh, difficult to interpret. So uh, this is sort of a second uh, attempt at that that's, that's using field conditions. Do you expect to see a lot more of this with the climate modelers, you know, going back into the field? The hope is that they will be able to do this. And there's been sort of a disconnect lately between field uh, experimenters and, and modelers that they're, they're trying to close that gap. Um, the other uh, set of experiments that's been going on for a few years has been in the Arctic where the melting of permafrost is a concern because as the soil melts, there's a lot of organic material that gets turned into methane and released in the atmosphere. So that causes a positive feedback and it would be nice to know exactly how big that process is and, uh, and how to model it better. Hmm. And once we get these these data and the, the, the kind of effect sizes of some of these processes, I guess the ultimate goal is to just make climate models that bit much more accurate. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, there's really a, a lot of work to be done scaling it up to a global scale and figuring out what's going to happen under different uh, future scenarios. Thanks, Matt. And you can read all those stories and more at nature.com slash news. 
And that's it for another week from the Nature Podcast team. Can I interrupt you just for a second? Everyone in the room that actually understands what this team does at this very moment, raise a hand. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Mush. 